We've been working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians. We're in the final chapter today, and today's going to conclude this. So um, as, you, as you know, if you've been traveling with us, that this book is based upon Paul responding to questions that have come from the church. So in chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And there in chapter 7, he begins to speak about marriage. And so we we spent some time talking about marriage. Then if you go to verse 25 of chapter 7, he says, now concerning virgins. And he talked about single, being a believer, being single, and how all that works out. Then you go to chapter 8, and uh, all, all of the questions begin with the same phrase. Now concerning, this is the next question that they had, things sacrificed to idols. And we talked about some things where that would be appropriate, places that would be appropriate for believers, and some places, you know, believers just need to stay away from, from certain things and certain activities. And so then we came to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts. They had questions about spiritual gifts. And so we spent a few weeks talking about that. Then you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Everybody flip over to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, Paul is going to deal with the final question that comes from the church. And so in verse 1, he says, now concerning. Now that tells us this is just the next question uh, that, that they had on their list. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So what Paul's going to be talking about here, their, their last question is going to re, uh, regard, and I want you to write this down, Paul's going to answer the question about the offering, about the offering. Paul is going to be talking about the offering that this church is taking. It's not for the support of the local church, but the Corinthians were collecting an offering that they could send to the church in Jerusalem that was having a difficult time. We'll see how that that plays out as we go. So Paul's going to share some thoughts on this. Verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. And so in this, one of the things that we notice, we're going to write down just some observations that we make. First of all, most of our Bibles will say, as I directed. And uh, that word directed, I've put from the original language, I put it there in your outline. It means to, I won't try to pronounce the, the word in the, in the Greek, but it means to appoint. But I want you to underline that word command, command, uh, to give, to set an order, or to ordain. And the reason that I point that out is that when you read a commentate, a commentary, one of the things that it'll do is it will say that Paul's wording here is much stronger than just a suggestion. And uh, so, uh, and then for, for instance, some of the, the translations will translate it like this there in your outline. He says, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. So the language here is strong enough to suggest that Paul, when Paul writes this in his mind, what he's talking about is a non-negotiable. Go ahead and write that down. It's a non-negotiable. And there in that first verse he says, to the, uh, to the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So the idea is that Paul says, I'm not just telling you as a church, this is something that I've told a number of churches. So what Paul's going to talk about today is something that's going to apply to every church, every church. Go ahead and write that down. Now again, we're going to find that this offering is going to the church that's in Jerusalem. Corinth is in Greece, and Jerusalem is in Israel. There was a famine taking place there in Israel at this time, but also if you became a believer in Corinth, Corinth was a very pagan town. They had a number of gods. And so if you became a believer, the rest of the people looked on and said, all right, you're just worshiping another god. And so there there wasn't a lot of persecution early on in Corinth. However, in Jerusalem, it was all Jewish at that point. So if you became a believer 
and you, you didn't renounce Christ, you would be excommunicated. Now when you were excommunicated, here's what the, that meant. Because they were all Jewish, it meant that when you were excommunicated, you, nobody would sell you anything. You went to the market, they could not sell to you. You could not buy, uh, you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell anything. So your, your business would be completely done and your family would have to cut you off. So there would be no support for you. And so you, you'd become destitute very quickly. One of the things that we find there in the Jerusalem church is it will say in the book of Acts that there were many widows. And the idea is that the church had to support a number of these widows. And the reason they had to support them is because when they became a believer, they were excommunicated. When they were excommunicated, their families were forbidden for, for supporting or to support them. And so Paul is taking up this offering to take to Jerusalem to help meet some of those needs. This particular offering is going to be above their normal giving, which would support the local church. So this is going to be above and beyond. Verse 2, I've placed verse 2 on your outline, and uh, the reason I've done that is from the NIV, and it just, it's uh, much clearer. So we're going to read it on our outline. He says this, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul says, I don't want a special offering when I get there. You guys will be setting that aside right now. So there's a few things in this. First of all, when when do they do this? Well, he says, he says every week, first day of every week, and I put that there in your outline. So the idea is that this is to be done regularly. Go ahead and write that down. When when, uh, we get paid in our family, that's the first thing that we do is, is we write the check for that. In their economic system, it just made more sense to collect it on a weekly basis. So that, that's just what they did. The idea is that this is to be something that they do regularly, not sporadically. Then the next thing it says, we'd say, what day? He says, on the first day of every week. Well, the first day in that context is Sunday, Sunday. In the early church, the the Christians began to worship on Sunday because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. Now, in that that context, in in the early church and in in that that region, Sunday was not a day off. So the the people would work on it because it's a day off because we come from a Christian background, but it wasn't that way back then. So Sunday was just a regular work day. So their services would be at night, so it would be at an evening service. So on Sunday when they met, that's when they would do that. And then the question is, who participates? Well, Paul says, each one of you, each one of you. So in Paul's mind, and I want you to write this down, it meant that no one was exempt. No one was exempt. Paul is writing to a church where there are several people who are very affluent, but there are also people who are impoverished, and there are people who were working as, as servants, and some were even slaves, and they didn't have a whole lot. But when, when, when Paul writes this, the idea is that everybody in the church, every, you know, everybody can do something is the idea towards this offering. I don't know how it was for you, but I grew up in a family that we were always taught that you support the things of God, you know, when you get out of high school. And then when you get out of high school, you go to college and say, well, you know, after, after college and, and then, you know, when, when you get a job and you get married and you get established and there was always this time out in the future. So one of the things that, that we've done in our family is we tell our kids, when you're blessed by the Lord financially, you always put God first. So he says, so who participates? Each one. Well, then he says, I want you to set aside. Now when he says set aside, that implies a predetermined amount, set aside. That's important because if you set that aside, 
It's not that you're sitting in church wondering how I should participate. You've already decided that. You've already decided. Also, it's so that you're not doing this based upon emotion. Have you ever been in a church and they bring little Mary up? Mary's six years old. Mary, the way we don't jump on board and we don't support, Mary's going to grow up, she's going to go into drugs, she's going to become a prostitute, lead a life of crime, we need your help right now. Pastor's wife starts crying, that sort of thing. So, so that's the idea, set aside, you know, it's a predetermined amount. So not based upon emotion. And then he says, in keeping with his income. In keeping with his income. Now, when he says that, that implies a proportion. Write that down. That implies a proportion. In keeping with his income. You see, uh, proportion because some people's income uh, was, was large and some people's income was very small. We don't always have the same amount, but we always have the same proportion. We have the same proportion. So the question is, so what is the, the proportion? Well, I'm going to suggest that there's two proportions. The first proportion is what Paul wrote to this church all the way back in chapter 9. Same book, same church, Paul's writing on something else. And he says this, uh, put it there in your outline, but one of the things I want to highlight is that throughout this book, Paul points to the Old Testament as, as an example for how New Testament believers are to behave. And so there's some variations in that. But here he says, well, we'll see. Paul says this, same church, same letter. He says, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their meals from the food brought to the temple as offerings? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. That's the temple. That's the Old Testament. Now, I want you to underline this next line. It just says, in the same way. Does everybody see that? Underline, in the same way. That's how it was in the Old Testament. He says, in the same way, this is something that comes over to the New Testament, the Lord gave orders that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. So Paul says, just the way that it was done in the Old Testament at the temple is the same way that it's supposed to be done in the New Testament, we would say, at the church. And so that that first proportion always goes to to your local church wherever you worship. And that's how whatever church that you go to pays for the buildings, the lights, the air conditioning, the all this stuff, the property, and you know, all that goes into it, the staff and everything else. That's because people put God first. And that's why they can do that. That's the first proportion. By the way, uh, and, and that first proportion in the Old Testament was called the tithe. So go ahead and write this down. Tithe just means 10%. So, so in ancient Israel, they would bring the first 10% and that would come to the temple and that kept things running there at the temple. And, and God says, here's why I do that. Not just to keep the lights on and the air conditioning, but there in your outline in Deuteronomy 14, he says the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. And so we do teach. We teach people to put God first in every area of their life. And finances is just one of those areas. And then I would also say if God's not first in the area of finances, then he's not really first in our lives. So here at Calvary, we teach on tithing. We teach on putting God first. But because we teach on it, it's something that that we practice. We practice it. So from day one, 
when, when we've received the offering each week, the first 10% has always gone to missions, benevolence, and outreach. So our missions, we, we support missionaries around the world, locally and abroad. We, we have a real passion for the persecuted church, the ones who can't do what we're doing here. So we support that. We support benevolence. We, we buy food certificates. When there's needs for people in our congregation, sometimes we've had to pay electric bills, sometimes we've had to pay mortgages, help people renew licenses so they can continue working, whatever, whatever it is. And so, so we do that. What that means for us as a church is that last year we were able to give out just over $300,000 towards missions, benevolence, and outreach. And so it's something that we, we don't just teach on, it's something that we practice. I would also say because of the faithfulness of this congregation in this, we've never had to say no to somebody because we didn't have the money to help. Uh, we have said no to people, but not because we didn't have the money to help. We've said no sometimes because somebody will say something like, if you don't help me, I'm going to live under a bridge tonight. And uh, sometimes we'll say, well, that's probably a good thing. Uh, sometimes you have to live under a bridge for a night or two to make some significant changes in your life. And so have at it. Do you need a blanket? We'll get you one. <laughs> but, but we've never had to say no because we don't have the money. So that, that. So, so that is the first proportion, Paul says, in the same way. Talks about it a number of times in, in the New Testament. But above that is what Paul is talking about here, and this is the offering above that that's going to be collected to send to another church, another group of believers who are having a very difficult time. They're suffering. So again, for, for Cheryl and I, that means that when we get paid, the first thing that we do, the first check is always back as the tithe. And then above that, there are certain um, missions things, uh, Things, causes that we're very passionate about, and that's our offering. So the first proportion comes to the local church. The offering is above that, which is why it's called tithes and offerings. They're, they're, they're alike, but they're, they're different. Now, let me say this. Um, anytime I speak on finances here at Calvary, when I, when I speak on giving, and you know it doesn't happen all that often, we put boxes in the back. We trust the Lord. We don't have somebody come up and you know, sing or cry and nothing like that. We just put boxes in the back. But every time I do, I, I get emails. Some people write me long letters of why they disagree. And people become very angry about that. And uh, I want you to know that when people do that, I always have the same response, always the same response. They come up and say, I disagree with you. I think that you shouldn't, you know, on and on and on. And I look at them and I always give the same response. I always say, okay, <laughs> fine. I just teach this. You do what you want to do. And uh, there you have it. Isn't that a great response? Yeah. A lot of people get that response from me. <laughs> okay. So anyways, so then verses three and four, he goes on. He says, now when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send with them. I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. I want you to underline Jerusalem. This is not for the support of the local church. This is something for another church above the support of the local church. And he says, and if it's fitting for me to go also, then I will go with them. And so Paul is just saying, I want to do things in such a way that you can't say I took the money and ran, so however you want to get it there is fine. That's not an issue. So that was their final question, and now Paul turns his attention to um, just giving some closing thoughts. So we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Paul's going to talk about making plans. So he says, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. 
For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, but I hope to remain with you for some time. Now I want you to underline, if the Lord permits, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus. And I want you to underline Ephesus because that's where Paul is at. Ephesus is in what was called uh, Asia back then, and it's in modern day Turkey today. So Paul's up there uh, in, in Turkey today in the town of Ephesus. He says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and then I want you to underline, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. So again, Paul writes this from modern day Turkey in this town of Ephesus. And Paul says, I'm I'm planning to come see you. That's my plan. And let me just say, planning is good. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite verses is right there in your outline, and it says, we should make plans counting on God to direct us. But then Paul adds this this one little line. He says, I'm planning on doing this. And then I want you to write this down. He says, I'll do it if the Lord permits. And we just underlined that. So I want you to write that down. If the Lord permits. So this is one of those times where we stop as we travel through in the closing thoughts and we say, all right, Lord, what what did you want to convey in, uh, in, in this little paragraph? Why is this so important that you included it in Scripture? Paul says, I'm coming to you, I'm planning on coming to you, but as you read the story we find out later on that Paul never makes it back to this church, at least not in the time that he said he was going to show up. He says, I'm planning on coming there, but it didn't work out. Now when when it doesn't work out, what's going to take place is that the Corinthians, some of the believers in the church of Corinth, they're going to begin talking about Paul and they're going to start some rumors. And they're going to say things like, you know, he says one thing and he does another. He said he was coming, but he doesn't show up. He, he, he promises much, he delivers little. You know, you can't trust what he says. He calls himself an apostle. And, and so the, the, this church, the, they begin to say some very, very negative things about Paul because it, it didn't work out. So negative were the things that this church was saying because it didn't work out for him that Paul responds to them in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, which we'll start studying in a couple of weeks. And I put the passage there on your outline. Paul responds to their rumors, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, now because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or, or, or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? He says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So Paul's a little frustrated with some of the things that are, that are uh, by the way, did, did I read that well? Gotta have some emotion there, don't you? So I, I love Paul's conclusion. He says, he says, you know, when I think about it, it was to spare you. It was to spare you. That's why, that's why the Lord kept me from, from coming there. And, and, and here's why. As we've traveled through this book, Paul has been very frustrated, if you've been traveling with us through this book, with, with this church and some of the things that are going on. So Paul says, you know, I was a little mad. So I think the Lord kept me from going there. Now, why, why is this here? I think, I think there's a couple of things that... that um, that we, we need to just consider. First of all, there's going to be some time in your life where you're going to plan something. And uh, you're going to pray, you're going to plan, you're going to launch out, you're going to go, and, and it's not going to work out. And that doesn't mean that you're unspiritual or that you missed it. 
All it means is that God had another plan. Does that make sense? Now, when that happens, here's what you need to know. There's going to be some, in this case, some well-meaning believers who are going to be the first to stand up and accuse you for not following through on the thing that you planned on doing. You need to know that. You need to know that that's going to happen. And uh, so, so two things. One, if that's you and it doesn't work out, don't say that you are unspiritual. On the other hand, if it doesn't work out for somebody else, don't you be the one that's accusing them because it didn't work out. Make sense? And I think that's why that's there. Don't be the guy taking the shot. Verse 9, he says, For a wide door of effective service has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Now here's what this means. You want to write this down. When God calls you to something, it doesn't mean that everything will go smoothly. And that's where you say amen. Amen. Has anybody else experienced this in your life? You know God's called you and it just doesn't go smoothly. Yes, hands waving in the back there, yes. So when, when you step out, you step out for the Lord, you, you're going to have opposition. And if you don't have opposition, then you, you need to question whether you're really stepping out for the Lord. Because if you're really stepping out on what it is that he's calling you to do, there's going to be some who are going to be a, a, a certain entity that's going to do everything that he can possibly do to, to stop it. So here is uh, Paul is there at Ephesus. God is blessing the ministry. But what does it mean when he says there are many adversaries? Well, I want you to turn one page over to the left. Go to chapter 15, verse 32. And if you didn't underline this, you'll want to gives us a little indication of what that adversary or what that challenge might have been. Remember, Paul is in Ephesus. He says, if from human motives, verse 32, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? So, so here, here's what this means. Uh, apparently when Paul went to Ephesus there in modern day Turkey, uh, they weren't as friendly to the gospel back then as maybe they would be today. That's a joke. There's not been a church built in Turkey in over 100 years, and, and because you, you, you just can't do that. So Paul goes there. It was very common in the Roman Empire where if they didn't like what you were teaching, one of the things that they would do, he says, I fought with wild beasts, they would take you and they would sew you in the skins of, of animals, and then they would throw you to the lions or, or to wild dogs, and they would devour you and, and tear you to pieces, and people would come watch. So if that's the case, then that's what happened, and Paul survived that. And uh, so I, I would call that some adversaries or some challenging circumstances, wouldn't you? I mean, I mean, it's not like his car broke down on the way. That's the idea. It, it, it was bigger than that, bigger than that. So, all right. Well, verse ten. So, if you have any challenges in your life, it, it could mean you know, it could mean that you're serving the Lord, and, and uh, God has you right where He wants you to be. Uh, we live in a time where many people will say, you know, if it's God's will, it's all just going to work out. Well, I found that if it's God's will, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's going to be a battle. And... <laughs> Verse 10. Verse 10, he says, now, and I love the wording here. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Paul, as, um, 
Paul is saying, I, I want you guys to be nice to Timothy as, if he shows up. Don't put him in a situation where he has to be afraid. Don't despise him and send him away in peace. The idea, Paul says, you know, when I was there and I was your pastor, you weren't always nice to me. As a matter of fact, I was your pastor. Apollos was your pastor. I left. Apollos left. Another pastor came. You're on your fourth pastor now. And your pastors keep leaving. He says, so if Timothy shows up, could you be nice to him? So that, that's the idea. Now, verse 12. Verse 12 is my favorite verse in this whole chapter. Verse 12 says this, and this is on hearing from God for other people. It says, but concerning Apollos. Now, Apollos, Apollos was the second pastor of this church. Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, but it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has opportunity. Again, this is one of those times where you look at it and you say, all right, Lord, um, why did you include this little passage here? And Paul says, in my translation, he says, I went to Apollos and I encouraged him greatly to come to you. And if you look at it in other translations, your translation might say it a little bit different, but I've put a couple of different ways that it's translated there in your outline. A literal translation says it like this, much I did entreat. And that indicates that it's not that Paul and Apollos had a passing conversation. It's that Paul was going to uh, Apollos saying, this, this church really needs you. They're, they're a mess. They're going through a difficult time. You were their pastor after I was there. They really need you to come back there, add some stability, and, and just be there and help bring some healing. Another way, uh, if you have the NIV, he says, I strongly urge. So, so there's a lot of emotion there. So, so again, it appears to be more than a, than a passing conversation. You need to go to Corinth. You need to go there now. They, they really need you. So here, here's the observation. I want you to write this down. Paul said, I think you should go. And Apollos said no. I know what you're thinking. This guy's deep. Write this down. Paul said, I think you should go. And Apollos said no. Apparently... Apollos thinks about it. He prays about it. Thinks about it a little bit more. It could be that, that he had a very bad experience there and that, that's a possibility. But for whatever reason, Apollos just says no, I, I, I'm not going back there at least not right there, right, right now. What I love is Paul's response. Paul just says, okay, well he'll come whenever he has the opportunity to come. Now why is this so important? I, I appreciate the way that Paul handles this situation. Paul does not say, you know, Apollos, I'm, I'm an apostle and I started that church and I'm your spiritual authority. I'm writing most of the New Testament and uh, you wouldn't even be in the ministry if it wasn't for me. I'm the guy who hears from God and I think very strongly you should go. Uh, I love that Paul doesn't do this. Paul just, Paul just says, uh, you know, I'm going to let you hear for, from God for yourself. Now, why is that so important? Uh, if you've been around the church as long as I have, it, it's not uncommon. I don't hear it so much anymore, but when, when I was a, a kid and growing up in my young teens, it was very common for somebody to walk up and say something like, you know, I was praying and uh, the Lord told me to tell you, anybody ever heard anything like this? Yes. The Lord told me to tell you. Now when they say this, I immediately know 
this is not from God. So, so the Lord told me to tell you. And, and, and then they tell me. Now, so here's the thing. Somebody says, the Lord told me if I say no, that I'm going against what God has specifically said. So what I love about Paul is he doesn't do this. He says, I really think you should go. But he allows Apollos to, to pray and come to the conclusion and say, no, it, it's not for me now. So two things. One, when somebody comes up and they have a very strong conviction for what you should do, and uh, they're, they're very adamant, then I would encourage you, be like Apollos and pray and let the Lord speak to you. On the other hand, if you have a very strong conviction about what somebody else should do, you need to be like Paul and allow them to hear from God for themselves. If, if God really wants them to do something, he can tell them. He'll tell them. Does that make sense? What I, what I love about Paul, and we're going to see this in the, in the next chapter when we get into 2 Second, Second Corinthians, Paul gives his philosophy of ministry, and this is how, this is one of those verses that we come back to time and time again here at Calvary. This is how we hope to operate in all things. But this is how Paul chose to do ministry. He says this there in your outline. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing strong. And what I love that is Paul as the apostle says, you know, our, our real job is to come along for your joy as you walk with the Lord, as you stand firm, as you grow. But it's not to lord it over anybody. So, so that's something that we, we want to model Paul. Aren't you glad? Now, now I have in my notes, I didn't put it on your outline, but this is one of the things that I've learned through the years. And it's true, it should be in the Bible, but it, it's not. But I didn't write it, so it's not. But I have in my notes this, that God loves you and everyone else has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> Should be in there somewhere, shouldn't it? Because it's, it's, it's so true. All right, moving on. Verse 13, verse 13. He says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. He's frustrated with this church. And let all that you do be done in love. Now, when he says, act like men, he says, be alert. Now, when he says, be alert, that is a military term. It means that that would be the term that they would use to stand guard. For those of us in the military, you remember what it was like to stand guard of something, that you were given charge of something, no matter what, you did not in any way go to sleep, you, you, you didn't lose that. I, I can remember very, very distinctly in uh, boot camp, we, I was taken out to a range and there was a tank that I was called to guard all night. And uh, apparently the Russians were, cons- this tank had not ran in 50 years, but they wanted me to guard it. So I'm, I'm guarding this tank, and my, my real fear was not the Russians, it was the drill sergeant. So I'm guarding this tank, and he says, now don't go to sleep, because I'll be checking in. So I'm doing everything that I can to stay awake. So at like 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm standing on top of the tank, and I'm singing show tunes, you know, like, hello, Dolly, well, hello, Dolly, whatever I could do to stay awake, but I did not fall asleep. That's the idea of being alert. You, uh, alert. You're, you're standing guard, you're not, letting, you're not letting that thing go. So why do I say that? Well, apparently in this church as we've been traveling through, 
they had really let their guard down. They had, someone was way out of line. They refused to confront. They had false teachers in the church, and we've talked about that. Nobody said anything. There was gross immorality going on in the church. When I say gross, I don't mean disgusting. I mean large scale immorality going on in the church. Nobody confronted anybody. And they thought that they were being loving by just not saying anything, being polite. And, um, and so in verse 14, Paul says, no, don't do that. But in verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Now, Paul, when we look at what Paul says and how he conducted this church, one of the things that we saw, I put the verse there in your outline. If you've been traveling with us, you'll remember all the way back in chapter 5, he says, I am told that you have a man in your church who is living in sin with his father's wife. And why haven't you removed this man from your fellowship? Then you must cast this man out of the church. So when Paul says, in everything that you do, act in love, loving means, and write this down, love does what's best for the church. And sometimes being loving means that you have to take a very strong stand. And in this case, it meant you had to put this guy out of the church. And they weren't acting like men. They weren't being alert. And so Paul says, you need to come back to that and to do what's best for the church. You and I live in a time period where in church world, we're very hesitant to confront. And so we, 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 want to be, we always want to be polite. We, want to, we, we, just, but we don't want to call somebody out. Paul says, that, no, that's not what I'm talking about. There are times when you have to take a very strong stand. You have to say, this is what's right, and uh, this is how we do this here. And if you, you're not going to act that way, you need to go some, somewhere else. And, and so certainly that, that has to happen. I, I'm always reminded of the story when Jesus goes to the temple. And as you know the story, he makes a whip. He sees the things going on. He makes a whip, and he goes in. He starts using the whip, turns over tables, and literally takes people and throws them out, drives them out of the temple. And you can bet that there were probably some people who were saying, well, that, that wasn't very kind. I mean, he could have handled that better. I mean, that, he wasn't kind to us, and, and uh, people were offended. That can't be of God. And we live in a time period that would think of that. But Jesus, who is God, said, no, now it's time to clear the temple. And he took a very strong stand. Sometimes you have to take a very strong stand. Does that make sense? Verse 15, he says, I, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they were, have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the, work and la- in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. Fortunatus just means fortunate. And I won't even pronounce his name. Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Uh, these are the men who brought the letters to, to Paul, uh, or brought the questions to Paul. So Paul says, treat them like they are, they're really serving the Lord. Verse 20, he says, all the brethren greet you, I'm sorry, verse 19, uh, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. They, the early church did not have church buildings, so that, that came later. Verse 20, he says, all the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that the greet one another with a holy kiss has been the verse of all singles ministries for the past 2,000 years. When, in, in that culture, the, 
the way that, that uh, you greet somebody, and it was uh, back in 2006, we took a group of people to Israel from our church, 35 people from, from our church. And I'm, I'm a very reserved person when it comes to, to greeting, but in, in Israel, in the Middle East, the way that you greet is that you walk up to somebody, and Bobby Michaels was leading the, the trip at that time. He would stand behind me, and he would say, you, you, do the, you have to do this kiss, and it's three times. So you don't touch the person, but you go, and you have to make that noise. And it has to, like you mean it. And so Bobby would stand behind me, because I'm very reserved, and I go, and he said, three times, Dan. And, and they would do this. Now, this is very awkward for me because we live in a culture where you shake hands. And so that's what they do. That's, that's how they greet one another. So when it talks about giving somebody a holy kiss, it's not... <laughs> that's not the idea. The idea is you're not even touching. In 2011, we went to Cuba, and it's not three times, it's only two times. And you don't want to get it wrong. It's... And, you know, so that's... It's, I'm, I'm glad to live here in America. So just... <laughs> I'm going to move on right from there. What verse are we at? So verse, um, verse 20 or verse 21? 21. So he says, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. When Paul was writing this, he was dictating this. So he's walking back and forth and somebody is writing this. He says, now he comes to the end. He says, I want to write the, the greeting or the ending with my, my own hand. So he writes that. Then he says in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha, or some of your translations would say the Lord come. The, this verse requires just a, a little bit of explanation. First of all, there are two words there, and in our English we've placed a number of words, but it's literally anathema, Maranatha, anathema, Maranatha. It's a play on words in the original language. The word anathema is translated a number of different ways. And so there on your outline, the word anathema, where he says accursed, uh, from Hitchcock's Bible Dictionary, just means separated, just be separated. And uh, the word maranatha just means the Lord come, the Lord come. And so you'll see this, this word in a few places, and it will say something like this. For instance, Paul would say in Romans 9, he says, For I could wish that I myself were anathema, accursed and cut off, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. So there, the the cut off, Paul says, I I would be glad to be cut off or separated from from Christ if it meant that all the Jewish people that I love could be saved. So it means separated. Make sense? So some translations will translate this verse like this. He will say, if anyone won't love the master, throw him out. Make room for the master. Anathema Maranatha. Paul has just told them to act like men, to stand firm, to take a strong stand. He says, listen, if you've got people in your church and they don't love the Lord, throw them out. So that, that's the idea. And he says, but then make room for the Lord is, is the idea. If they don't love the Lord, then you know, let them go. Verse 23, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And there you have the first book of Corinthians, and uh, that is now finished. So, cool. So, how many of you have been here through the, the whole study? Good. Did you learn some cool things? It's been a fascinating study. Thanks for coming out each week. Now, we're going to start 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at something a little bit different next week, but then we're going to start 2 Corinthians. But let's go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come here. And Lord, we realize that we live in a country because of your providence and those who gave their lives. We get to come here and we get to actually study your word. And uh, we don't worry about somebody coming in and arresting us or dragging us to prison because, because of great sacrifice. Father, I pray that we honor that great sacrifice by living with a great responsibility and, and uh, not, never being casual about what it is that we are blessed with. Help us as we go forward this week to represent you in all things. We pray, God, that you would bring people across our path that, that don't know you, that you can use us to share your love, your salvation, this relationship with them so that they could come into a relationship with you. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.